So there are a number of federal uh, laws that have been enacted in the last few decades to govern our system of elections, but they are, they're very discreet interventions. Like they're not sort of Congress coming in and trying to replace the states as the primary overseers of our system of elections. Welcome to season five of Briefly from the online team at the University of Chicago Law Review. My name is Kyra Cooper. And I'm Rachel Smith. And we are the hosts for this season's inaugural episode on the federal government's role in a system of largely state-run elections in the United States. Today, we will be joined by Professor Derek Muller and Professor Fernita Tolson to discuss the federal government's ability to intervene in state-run elections. Our electoral system is, by and large, run by the states. In the wake of the 2020 election, President Trump's battles in federal court to overturn election results certified in swing states like Georgia and Pennsylvania took center stage. Meanwhile, other post-election battles across the nation received less attention. In Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, one Democratic candidate for the United States House of Representatives attempted to overturn her opponent's victory by using a little-known process before Congress. In the 2020 race for Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, voters cast over 400,000 ballots to determine their next legislator for the U.S. House of Representatives. Republican candidate Marionette Miller-Meeks won by a very narrow margin. The election came down to just six votes. This six-vote victory was the closest House race in almost four decades. The Democratic candidate, Rita Hart, contested the election. Hart disputed that lawful ballots had not been counted that would have flipped the election result. Hart bypassed state judicial processes and took her claim to the House Administration Committee. Iowans widely disapproved of this move, but Hart argued that the timeline for state processes was not favorable to receive a fair adjudication. Hart's challenge raises an interesting issue. When does the federal government have authority to interfere in and possibly overturn a state election? Today we are joined by Professor Derek Muller. Professor Muller, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Derek Muller. I'm a professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law, where I teach election law, federal courts, and civil procedure. So let's start at the beginning. How does Iowa go about counting votes and certifying the results of an election? So Iowa has a number of precincts throughout all of its counties, throughout the state, and those precincts aggregate their results at the end of election night. The day of the election, they're sort of processing absentee ballots. And then on election night, when the polls are closed, they start to tabulate the ballots. Um, And the canvassing process takes about a week in Iowa, where counties double check and triple check their results and provide a a final figure. And so there's a process about 10 days after the election where the counties will provide those sort of preliminary certified results of the canvas. And so by mid-November, we should know uh, who the winner of the election is unless unless someone chooses to contest or challenge that result. So the counties perform a canvas to provide the certified results of an election. And this certification process includes both approving and denying ballots. What are some issues that may prevent a ballot from being approved and counted? Yeah, so some ballots might not be counted because it's an ineligible voter who cast a provisional ballot on election day, but turns out was not eligible to vote. They haven't been able to establish proof of residency or whatever it might be. They voted in the wrong precinct. And if they voted in the wrong precinct and it turns out they should have voted somewhere else, the vote won't be counted. 
or sometimes there are defects in an absentee envelope. If the envelope is returned and it's opened, the absentee board in a county won't count that vote because they're worried that somebody tampered with the envelope and will notify the voter and say, you need to submit a new ballot if you want your vote to be counted. So there are a number of sort of procedural technical violations. There are not many. The vast majority of ballots are going to be counted. But, but there are occasional problems that would exclude a ballot from being counted. Speaking generally, what processes are available to a candidate in Iowa to challenge an election? And so an uh, election contest can be filed after that preliminary certification. Again, in mid-November, uh, a challenger to an election has two days for a federal election. It's two days to request a recount. Uh, they can request a recount in any or all precincts or counties within the jurisdiction. Um, and once that happens, you have the opportunity then for a recount to happen and conclude by the end of November. So that's sort of the principal mechanism that a challenger would have to contest the election. Let's talk more specifically about this election challenge. In Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, the 2020 election had the highest turnout in state history, with 76% of the state casting a ballot. The initial canvas had Miller Meeks, the Republican candidate, leading by 47 votes, at which point the Hart campaign requested a recount. I know you were a designee for the Miller Meeks campaign for the recount board in Johnson County. So could you talk a little bit about recount boards and your experience with the recount? Sure. So Iowa has 99 counties, which if you've ever seen a presidential <laughs> caucus happen here, you know, people talk about it a lot. And it's a lot of counties for a relatively small state. And the second congressional district has 24 counties. So each of those counties created a recount board. And each recount board consisted of one member that was chosen by the Hart campaign, the, the challenger. There was another a member chosen by the presumptive winner, the Miller-Meeks campaign. And then both of those individuals named to the county board would mutually agree upon a third sort of neutral arbiter, if you will, who would be the third member of the board. And there were a couple of places where that was contested and a judge had to help them pick the third member. But for the most part, it was a pretty amicable experience. So then we got those three members of the board in each of those 24 counties and they got together and would start to uh, figure out the process of the recount. Iowa law allows them to choose if they want to do a hand count, so manually looking at the ballots, or whether or not they want to do a machine recount, which is just rerunning the ballots through the same machines that were shown on election night, and then coming up with the result. And so there were a couple of interesting wrinkles that come out of the recount process. One is the recount board can only count ballots that were counted on election night. So some of those ballots we talked about earlier, if they were rejected on election night as improperly received or a voter whose identity couldn't be verified, whatever it might be, recount boards had no opportunity to add to those that pool. We're just recounting what we've got. Another was, you know, in some of these counties, I was in Johnson County, we had 84,197 ballots. Um, and our deadline was, uh, you know, about a week and a half to try to get them all counted. And so the, the question is, how much do we have to do by hand? How much could we use the machine to assist us in the recount? These were some of the more contested debates that we had as a recount board to figure out what would be appropriate. Finally, it's you know a little a little interesting to think about the fact that each of those county boards across the district 
were making their own decisions. They were deciding what they wanted to do too. And so there could have been inconsistencies about what different boards were deciding to do in those different jurisdictions as they thought, well, we're a small county, we can do this all by hand. We're a large county, we ought to do this by machine recount, whatever it might be. So that that was the basic structure and process. So what were the Hart campaign's primary disputes with the results of the initial canvas and then the recount? Right. So after the canvas, um, you know, I think the the question was for Rita Hart, she looked and said, listen, I think there are lots of overvotes and undervotes that were not counted. That is, when you fill in the bubbles on your ballot and you submit it and we run it through the machine, sometimes the machine doesn't pick up a vote. And it's that's called an undervote. It looks like nobody has or that, that you've left it blank. And, and that's common, actually. A lot of voters show up at the polls, they'll vote for president, and they'll just walk away. It won't count anything else. But at the same time, if a voter you know, included a very light mark on the ballot, then the machine might not pick that up. And so one thought was, well, let's look at undervotes and see if we can add votes that the machines might have missed. Another was a category of overvotes. And this is a much smaller bucket, much, much smaller. But Those are ballots where somebody voted for more than one candidate in that office, despite the fact that you could only vote for one member of Congress. And the thought was, well, can we go back through? And if somebody, for instance, they started to fill in a bubble and then lifted up their pen and filled in the other bubble completely, or they filled in a bubble and marked an X through it and filled in the other bubble, right? The machine would have counted those as an overvote, voting for multiple people for one office, but a set of human eyes could look at that and identify it and say, oh, yeah, well, I think we can identify the intent of the voter was actually to vote for this candidate, not that candidate. So I think the real challenge that comes in the recount is to say, are there things that the machines missed that we can be looking at and examining and say ought to be counted with a set of human eyes taking a look on that? And so I would say that was the sort of heart of the job uh, that many of the recount boards were, were, were looking at. The Hart campaign argued that 22 ballots were left uncounted during the initial canvas. And as you've described, the recount can only count ballots that qualified during the canvas. So how would a state court process have worked? And would those 22 ballots have received different treatment in Congress? So what, with those ballots, um, you know, the Hart campaign would have had the opportunity to file a contest in Iowa courts. And so after we have an opportunity to recount, we get a final certified winner on November 30th after all the recounts are done. And the Hart campaign was able to identify a handful of ballots. They say, you know, were missed uh, that should have been counted originally, but that were not counted. Some of those popped up during the recount, you know, a couple of ballots here and there that looked like they'd been excluded. Others were some of these absentee ones we talked about. So one would have been to go into a state court and contest and say, state court. Here's some discrete ballots that should have been counted under state law. The recount boards couldn't have counted them. Please count them. Uh, Had you gone to federal court, um, it really probably would have been a state law basis. And so probably the better procedure would have been to go through the state court process. The Hart campaign chose not to do those things and instead chose to raise a contest with Congress, which is within its right to do so, um, but also sort of led to some of the concerns that I think were very prominent in the media uh, and in the Miller-Meeks critiques of the Hart campaign's decisions to say, you know, I think you should have taken these challenges about a discrete 
batch of 22 ballots that you think should have been counted to the courts instead of taking them into Congress for, for a contest. So under what authority did Rita Hart bring her petition to Congress, and what were the advantages of doing so? Yeah, so Rita Hart decided to bring the election contest in Congress under the Federal Contested Elections Act. And so you can, as a, a challenger, again, she had a statutory right to bring a challenge in an Iowa state court, a special fixed court that would have been a five-member commission, the Iowa Supreme Court's chief justice and four other state judges. They would have had about a week to review the challenge and issue a decision. And then there would have been sort of a, a determination under Iowa law about those 22 ballots or whatever other sorts of challenges she had. And the Hart campaign said, you know, we don't have enough time. You know, a week's not long enough. It was a, It's a fixed time to, determined by statute and said we'd prefer instead to go to Congress to make this determination. The Miller-Meeks campaign said, well, it's convenient for you to say there's no time, right? We Maybe you're not bringing the challenge because you think you're going to lose. And at the end of the day, if you're only talking about 22 ballots, we think a court can figure that out in, in, in a week. But instead, she brought the challenge in Congress. And by bringing it to Congress, you know, Congress is the, has the sole power to judge the qualifications, elections, and returns of its members. And it typically heavily defers to states and what the state process has yielded. Um, it did not do so in the late 19th century in particular very much. It would often revisit and review those things. But in the last 50 years, it's very unusual for Congress to look at it. At the same time, we got to the end of the recount and that 47-vote margin had dwindled to six votes. This, the certified total was just six votes. And if Rita Hart says, I've got 22 votes here that I think we can talk about, that would most of them are for me, that are going to yield me as the majority winner, then we can send this over to, to Congress. And Congress has that sole authority to, to review what, what uh, what happened in the state process and make a determination. I think for the Hart campaign, the thought was there's no week-long time frame, right? There's a much longer window and opportunity to take a look at all this, a much more time to devote to taking a look at the ballots. And frankly, right, it's uh, Congress was controlled by Democrats. The House is controlled by Democrats. And the Democratic challenger was hoping, I think, for a favorable audience in front of Congress. And so the thought was if Congress might be more willing to look at these ballots, count all these 22 votes that were missed, um, it would pre present itself as a, as a procedurally advantageous forum to challenge uh, this election. So what happened to Rita Hart's election challenge? Right. So after this election contest was filed in Congress, um, Congress chose not to dismiss the election dispute. This was a partisan vote about whether or not it was appropriate to dismiss the challenge. So proceeded to the next stage, which is discovery. And so there were going to be some depositions that were taken and the parties were going to exchange some information. And then very early in that process, Rita Hart um, voluntarily withdrew the complaint. And you can ask yourself, you know, you know, what was the basis for doing so? You know, I think she was, I think, particularly upset by the fact that there was a lot of sort of popular outcry against her for sort of thwarting the will of the people, right? What she saw as pursuing the opportunity to enfranchise these 22 voters who whose votes hadn't been counted and left on the sidelines. For others, it was sort of a a convenient opportunity to selectively choose some of the evidence and therefore undermine an election that had gone through extensive uh, neutral processes and through uh, a process that she chose to take to Congress instead of taking to the state courts where they might have been impartial. 
I think there's also this sort of this political will that's been lurking in the background where the, the concerns out of Congress were, of course, we're going to be open to this, but a number of Democrats in the House uh, publicly expressed their reluctance to overturning the result of the election, to saying that there was ever going to be enough evidence that Hart was going to be able to come forward with to suggest that Congress ought to seat somebody other than the certified winner in the state. And so as Democrats began to sort of peel off publicly from that position, I think you saw Hart recognize that it was just going to be too heavy a lift, that at this stage, she didn't have the political will to be able to do so. And if that's the case, then maybe withdrawing the challenge at this stage was the best thing to do. So for whatever reason, we can speculate about the reasons the Hart campaign chose to withdraw the, the complaint. And so Miller Meeks, who had been provisionally certified as the winner and who had been serving in Congress since January 3rd, uh, will continue to do so through the end of her two-year term. Hart brought her petition before the House Administration Committee. But what enables Congress to have this authority over a state-run election? Yeah, so Congress has always, from the very beginning, <laughs> accepted challenges to election. If a challenger, if someone shows up at the end of election and somebody else says, no, I, I'm the real winner, you could initiate a challenge in Congress. And for a long time, these, these began to get unwieldy. They were contentious. And in 1969, the Federal Contested Elections Act was designed by Congress to really cabin and make it, in some ways, much more difficult for a contestant. The thought is, we trust and defer to the state process. But it's basically like a, it's, it's like a litigation setup, where a contestant files a complaint. There's the opportunity for the contestee uh, the presumptive winner to to file a motion to dismiss. And if they file that motion to dismiss, it sort of delays the opportunity to file an answer or the contestee files an answer to the complaint, you know, admitting or denying allegations. And then it moves to a discovery process where you can depose individuals and request additional evidence to, to gather. So it very much follows sort of a litigation process. And given that Congress is acting as a judge here, um, you know, that that makes sense. So this complaint is filed in front of the House, which refers it to the Committee on House Administration. And the Committee on House Administration sort of handles the procedures here to take a look at these things. And one of the, one of the big challenges that arose, I think, uh, and one of the more contested things as the complaint and answer were filed and, and Hart and Miller-Meeks began to battle here, is what law should govern this dispute? Undoubtedly, uh, we think that an election held under Iowa law probably ought to be governed by Iowa law, right? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, at the same time, Congress has in the past expressed a willingness to depart from a state's law if it needs to effectuate the intent of the voter, if it determines that a state's law has been depriving individuals of certain rights. Or you can imagine if there's been a fraud committed in the election or bribery it's going to not count certain kinds of, of ballots that were cast or precincts, or it's going to have some uncertainty about the results. So th there are instances where it deviates from state law. And one of the things that Park Campaign raised in its filings was to suggest that this committee should depart from state law in certain places where necessary to effectuate the intent of the voter. And that's a very contentious proposition, right? Again, it's within Congress's purview to decide what standards should govern the recount, at the same time, for Congress to develop its own standards after the fact starts to feel like you're, you're peeking at the merits or you're developing things that could advantage one side or another once you sort of know what the stakes are. One of the things we like about election law is 
we have these ex-ante rules that we're hopefully adhering to and everyone's sort of registering under the same system and voting under the same system. So it can become contentious if we're thinking about how to create or fashion new or different rules after the election, and especially in front of a political body like Congress. So why don't most candidates, especially if their party is in the majority in the House, choose to petition the House rather than use state processes? Congress gets a handful of fees every year. They're not novel. <laughs> they're, they're not new things. It's just most of them are pretty frivolous. They are, you know, they're candidates who have lost by thousands of votes who are filing these petitions. And I think for the most part, Congress realizes, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, that if it steps in to overturn an election in this instance, then the other party is going to step in and overturn the election in another instance. And so I think there's also a nervousness about stepping in and and overturning a state-certified result. And the state processes are much, I mean, they're very good (laughs) compared to what they might have been 100 years ago, right? We have a lot of federal oversight from the the Voting Rights Act, among other things, that provide for some of this uniformity. We have broad uh, expansions of the franchise in a number of areas. We have robust state judicial processes that are now in place where some of these states wouldn't even review some of the federal elections 100 years ago. So I think the thought is from Congress, we're reluctant to step in and do this stuff too often. So a lot of people still do file those petitions. Most of them are dismissed outright. Occasionally, they get into discovery into that next stage, and even that is a contestable proposition. And even the winning candidate views it as an affront to the legitimacy of their win that Congress would even investigate it at that side. For the most part, we just think the state processes are trustworthy. Same time, not many many elections are decided by six votes, right? It's a pretty thin margin, and you can understand why the stakes feel so much more significant, so much higher to think about when we're dealing with such a razor-thin margin. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Six votes is a pretty slim margin. So Congress has the authority under the Federal Contested Elections Act to overturn an election. But have they ever exercised this authority? So they have. Again, they used to do it a lot more in the 19th century, early 20th century, and they sort of tapered off from it. And you can think about some instances where they've done it the the most recently and the most contentious was an episode out of Indiana in 1984. Uh, It was known as the Bloody Eighth uh, because it was uh, sort of it has that rhetorical flair because it was deemed a, a very bruising battle in 1984. So the Republican candidate was the presumptive winner out of the uh, 8th Congressional District in Indiana in 1984. And when presenting his credentials before Congress, Congress actually took an unusual step and chose not to seat him, even though he showed up with a certificate of election saying I'm the candidate. Congress voted by a, by a thin majority, as Democrats were in control of the House, to refuse to seat the presumptive winning candidate. And it instead sent the election to the Committee on House Administration to review. And a sort of a three-member commission controlled by Democrats decided that we're going to look at some of these absentee ballots that were excluded. We're going to develop some rules. We're going to count the ballots. And they were developing some procedures that were not entirely consistent with existing Indiana law. And there's a lot of there's long history to talk about there. Uh, there. There was perhaps a change at the last minute where they decided to stop counting ballots once it appeared the Democratic candidate was ahead. And then they sort of said, you know, we think that the Democratic candidate is actually the winning candidate here, presented that uh, to Congress and Congress. And I'm 
pretty much partisan lines, voted to seat the Democratic candidate instead of the Republican candidate. A really bruising battle within Congress. It was a rallying cry for many Republicans. Newt Gingrich and Dick Cheney sort of cut their teeth on some of these disputes and sort of always thought about these things ahead of a contract with America in 1994 when, when Republicans took over Congress. And that was the last sort of really bruising battle over uh, an election where Congress seated someone other than the one who had the certificate of election. There have been instances in the last, you know, 30 years where they've looked closely at elections, one out of uh, Southern California in the 90s, where Republicans alleged some non-voters had participated and changed the election. Uh, Another in the early 2000s about touchscreen voting machines in Florida and whether or not those altered the results. Um, Those were sort of two other races in recent years that went to some investigation, but ultimately Congress backed off and said, we're not going to change the result. And so too here, um, you know, Congress ultimately decided not to change the result of this election, in part because Hart withdrew her complaint, uh, chose not to proceed with it. And so Congress was spared from from perhaps another bruising battle uh, on the floor of Congress. How should we think about the balance between state and federal authority over elections, using the example of Representative Miller Meeks and Rita Hart in Iowa's 2nd Congressional District? Yeah, so undoubtedly, the the federal government, the Congress, still has this robust power within its control to review elections and ensure that they're legitimate, ensure that these outcomes are proper and appropriate. But undoubtedly, it really doesn't like to exercise it if it doesn't have to. And I think all these members of Congress now, you know, they run every two years. They see the procedures in their state. They see state law and its administration. They've seen bipartisan election boards certify the the results of of these elections and approving what happens in the canvas. They saw in the congressional district, the the recount boards that I was a part of, where you have a three-member commission, including a neutral arbiter who is helping to make decisions if there are uh, disputes between the campaigns on the board. You have state courts with these robust procedural mechanisms available to them to review the results. I think Congress has just sort of backed away from doing too much more in terms of the enforcement of election authority. That is, while it's within its authority to do so and to review and and second guess those results, for the most part, it really trusts the state processes. And unless there's some true egregious malfeasance, I think it's going to be very difficult for Congress to question that result. Instead, we've really shifted and pressed a lot of the things that Congress used to do 100 years ago into the ordinary judicial tribunals of the state. And maybe that's the way it should be, right? I think we, we think that a lot of judges are, we like to put a lot of things in front of judges who are, you know, in theory, they're going to hear the evidence in front of them in a, in a neutral fashion. And they're going to render a result that they think is consistent with the evidence, as opposed to being part of what could be a pretty partisan political process in the political branches. Um, at the same time, it is sort of though a, a recognition that that Congress is ceding some of that authority it would otherwise have by deferring to what the state processes are doing. Well, this has been incredibly insightful, Professor Mueller. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. The election in Iowa's second congressional district illustrates the complex system of legal authority over elections in the United States. To help us develop a constitutional framework to understand our current system and the broad reforms proposed in pending voting rights bill HR1, we turned to Professor Pranita Tolson. 
She's an election law scholar and the vice dean for faculty and academic affairs at the USC Gould School of Law. She's also a visiting professor at the University of Chicago Law School this quarter, where she's teaching election law. So hi, Professor Tolson. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here. Thrilled to talk about these very important issues. A unique feature of elections in the United States that we hear about a lot is that states are the primary administrators of elections. What do states and the federal government each have the authority to do? And what are the relevant constitutional provisions at issue here? The states have primary authority over our system of elections. So that means that they set voter qualification standards, and they also usually take the first crack at setting a time, places, and manner of federal elections. So the U.S. Constitution has uh, some provisions that give Congress authority to interfere with that to some extent. So, for example, states cannot discriminate on the basis of race with respect to voting. Uh, That's the 15th Amendment. Um, Another example is uh, even though states can take the first crack at setting the time, place, and manner of federal elections, Congress has authority to make or alter those provisions. So that is uh, the elections clause. Uh, So so there are different provisions that uh, give Congress power to intrude, but generally speaking, uh, states have have primary authority. Um, And that's always been true. I know in the last 50 years, uh, Congress has been aggressive um, in intervening with uh, state and federal elections, but in particular, uh, they were trying to address longstanding problems of racial discrimination um, and other types of discrimination in voting. So even, you know, discrimination uh, uh, along gender lines, and the discrimination um, with respect to age, right? So there's a, a constitutional provision that requires that people 18 and older uh, be enfranchised. So just various points of our history has required there to be uh, changes that allow Congress to have some oversight of our system of elections, but um, it doesn't really disturb the sort of foundation that states are the entities that have uh, the authority to set the parameters of our, our elections. How much of this is set by, generally speaking, like centralized state policy as opposed to set by, you know, the localities within a state that are the ones that are actually running the polling locations? Right. So, so states delegate a lot of authority down to the county level. Um, there are thousands of officials that uh, have some piece of the election apparatus. So uh, they delegate anything from, you know, responsibility to register voters, to absentee voting, to setting up and staff and polling places, just any number of things that you think of when you actually go and vote is usually handled by some uh, local election official. Um, So so states may have a a uniform system, uh, but at the county level, um, the, the counties are, are primarily responsible for actually implementing the elections. Now, what that means, though, is that you're going to get some variation from, from county to county and even within counties, right, because there are certain um, local elections. You can have an election for a, a water re- reclamation dis- district or, you know, you can have specialized local elections as well. So you're going to have some variations even at the county level when it comes to, to elections because you literally have thousands of jurisdictions running elections. I was wondering if you could also give us, uh, in your view, what you think are some advantages and disadvantages of this decentralized system that we have. Right. So so I do think that there is some benefit to having a decentralized system with respect to uh, the integrity of elections, not in the pejorative sort of voter fraud as a political flashpoint sense, but just in the sense of, you know, states being able to have some oversight for uh, a smaller number of voters in a sort of discrete, confined space, there is some benefit from that. And also you get some benefit from it because it it allows us to develop a set of best practices. 
right? So you let the the states experiment. The then you have you know local election officials who experiment even further, and eventually some best practices will bubble up that other states can borrow from. So there's definitely a benefit uh, to having a decentralized system. But there are also some drawbacks, right? So, you know, the fact that some states are currently trying to make it harder to vote than others, uh, sort of relying on this uh, argument of uh, ballot integrity and voter fraud, despite the fact that 2020 was one of the most secure election cycles uh, probably in our country's history, um, is a, a definite drawback, right? That that level of experimentation also means you're going to have some states who are bad actors and try to restrict the electorate. So that sort of brings me to the next topic that we wanted to address, which was um, when sort of those disadvantages do bubble up, um, you know, discrimination or undue burdens to voting rights. Um, we were wondering um, what is the federal government allowed to do affirmatively to sort of counteract those practices? So um, it's, it's <laughs> this is always a struggle for me in my research. I, I like to start from the premise that uh, the Constitution doesn't provide an affirmative right to vote. I think that in and of itself uh, makes it difficult for Congress to do as much as I would like it to do. Uh, so there is the, the Supreme Court has read a right to vote into the Constitution, right? They read the Equal Protection Clause to have a component that protects a fundamental right to vote. Uh, but because the 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 court is inferring a right to vote, that gives the court a lot of leeway in interpreting the scope of that right to vote, as opposed to if it was textual, right? Then that, to some extent, that would be a constraint on the court's interpretation. Um, and so because of that, the court in recent years has allowed states to uh, have more space to regulate the right to vote, um, you know, under the argument that states have a lot of sovereignty in the space, but it has worked to the detriment of voters. Um, and so uh, because of that, I think the fundamental right to vote in and of itself hasn't given Congress enough power, even though Congress under the 14th Amendment can enforce that provision through appropriate legislation, um, they don't have a lot of space to, uh, to sort of interfere and protect the right to vote, inter interfere in the sense of intruding on um, state sovereignty and protect the right to vote to the full scope that we need Congress to. Um, and there are other provisions as well. I mentioned the 15th Amendment, um, but the Supreme Court has interpreted that provision to require proof of discriminatory intent and effect if you have a facially race neutral regulation. So you could have a voting regulation that has a racially disproportionate effect. Uh, examples are um, from voter ID law to uh, documentary proof of citizenship requirements. These are things that have a racially disparate impact. Uh, but the Supreme Court has read the 15th Amendment to require proof of discriminatory intent and effect. Um, they've done the same for the 14th Amendment in a parallel um, context where you deal with race as a protected class. So um, all of that amounts to a very difficult time for Congress to kind of step in and, and, and regulate in this space. Um, now, of course, there are other provisions as well, but, uh, and, and to be clear, these provisions don't get as much attention, right? So the guarantee clause is another provision that gives Congress oversight of state political systems, right? The, the, that provision says that uh, Congress will guarantee to each state a, a Republican form of government. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion and debate about what that means exactly. Um, in 1850, the Supreme Court said that that provision is non-justiciable. So you don't have a huge body of case law that discusses the guarantee clause. Um, um, you would think that that would mean that Congress will say, hey, this is an opportunity for us to define the parameters of this provision, uh, but they haven't. Um, I know at some point in our uh, conversation, we're going to talk about H.R. 1, um, and that will is, is honestly an opportunity for Congress to, to weigh in on the meaning of the guarantee clause through that piece of legislation, which I'll come back to. 
Uh, but generally speaking, um, Congress has been uh, in recent years, uh, at least since the, the 1960s, reluctant to be aggressive in the space. Probably the, the high watermark was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was initially um, enacted pursuant to the 15th Amendment. Um, and that provision, um, which Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, prohibits any uh, any voting mechanism that discriminates, that has the effect or intent of discriminating on the basis of race. Effect is important because the Constitution requires purpose and effect. Section 2 only requires effect. So that has been effective for um, you know, litigants who want to challenge uh, restrictive uh, voting uh, practices. Um, and Section 5 of that provision, probably the most successful civil rights uh, provision in our country's history, uh, placed the uh, the South, who, who the Southern states who were um, really bad actors, uh, and it basically created federal oversight, right? Because they required those states to pre-clear any changes to their voting laws with the federal government before those changes could go into effect. 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder, basically invalidated um, the coverage formula of that particular provision of the Voting Rights Act. So um, the Voting Rights Act itself has been maimed, and I think that has made Congress a little bit gun shy um, in trying to figure out how to approach some of these issues, which is why in part HR1 is such a big deal. Now, there are other, you know, federal laws that um, touch on voting. So the Uniform Overseas um, Military Voting Act requires states to send ballots to military personnel serving overseas and also American citizens living overseas. The National Voter Registration Act uh, or the Motor Voter Law, as it's popularly known, the Help America Vote Act. So there are a number of federal uh, laws that have been enacted in the last few decades to govern our system of elections, but they're, they're very discrete interventions, right? They're not sort of Congress coming in and trying to replace the states as the primary overseers of our system of elections. Probably the most far-reaching was the Voting Rights Act, which, and you know, the Supreme Court um, had something to say about. So, so here we are, right? So, so HR1 is coming at a time where I think some intervention is welcome, but it's also coming at a time where the constitutional framework as interpreted by the Supreme Court is much more narrow um, than it was 50 years ago. How do you see the Federal Contested Elections Act as well fitting into this scheme of divided state and federal authority? Of course, of course. So under Article 1, Section 5, um, Congress can re review the elections of its members. It really is an overlooked source of authority, um, not by Congress, but just by really the court and, and thinking about Congress's power in this space. And also people who run for office <laughs> don't really think about this as a potential check on their own elections, right? Because uh, throughout history, Congress has tapped into its power under Article 1, Section 5 to enforce some of the democratic norms that we hold dear today. Um, so to give you an example, um, during Reconstruction, uh, so much of that is a story about how the Republicans in Congress were able to really alter the constitutional landscape and the court pushback. Right. The court was, you know, very aggressive in reading these provisions narrowly so as to not really disturb state sovereignty um, over matters of civil rights and, and elections. Um, the 1875 civil rights cases are a case in point where the, the, the Supreme Court said that Congress did not have the authority to pass a civil rights bill that prohibited discrimination in public accommodations. And in many ways, the bill is uh, was um, identical in some ways to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, so, so just to, to give you a sense of how narrow the, the Supreme Court was reading the new amendments, uh, well, Congress had other tools at its disposal to try to get around the court. 
his power under Article 1, Section 5 is judicially non-reviewable. Right. So if Congress comes in and has a hearing and they, they look at the votes and they say, OK, in this district, they disenfranchise all the African-Americans. Once we count those votes, that means that, you know, person B is the winner instead of person A. Then they seat person B. Uh, the, the court cannot come in and say you should have sat person A. Right. That's in incredibly powerful. And Congress, um, between 1870 and 1900, switched hands a lot right between the Republicans and the Democrats. In 1874, the Republicans lost control of Congress, and then it was just a flip-flop for really 25 years. But during the times in which the Republicans had control of Congress, they used their power under Article 1, Section 5 in order to try to address some of the race discrimination in voting because they could, they had very, a very difficult time doing it directly because the Supreme Court was invalidating a lot of the Reconstruction Era legislation. You know, that remains a source of authority. It's not that that's kind of the high watermark. You look at that area and you say, say, wow, Congress did a lot. Even since then, Congress has, you know, refused to seat people elected in violation of state and federal law. Um, they've set aside elections. Um, they have held seats open. <laughs> right. So so Congress has used this authority. It's just that it doesn't get a lot of attention. What are some of the current like major fault lines or things that, you know, maybe Congress would like to do or is proposed that it will do in H.R. 1 um, that, mm -hmm. you know, are of disputed constitutionality under this framework that you've described? So just just a quick overview of H.R. 1. Um, so H.R. 1 is is really ambitious. Uh, so it would enfranchise individuals with felony convic convictions for purposes of voting in federal elections. Um, it will require that congressional districts be drawn by independent com commissions. Um, it vastly expands the opportunities for voter registration. So it requires same-day voter registration. It has a system for automatic voter registration. And it also requires opportunities to register online. Um, it strengthens eth ethics rules for public servants. It tries to reduce the, the influence of money on politics by altering the campaign finance rules. So when I when I talk about H.R. 1 is expansive, it really does try to touch on every almost every aspect of our political system. Um, but of course, in doing so, it's going to raise some constitutional concerns. So um, in particular, the elections clause, as I mentioned before, gives Congress the ability to make or alter state regulations. Um, so to the extent that the H.R. Uh, 1 touches on federal elections, um, that would seem to be OK. Right. But there are still aspects of it that seem to go beyond time, place, matter. So, for example, um, the enfranchising individuals with felony convictions. That's the voter qualification standard. And that typically falls within the state's sphere of regulation, right? States set voter qualification standards. Um, when this bill was first proposed in 2019 and it relied exclusively on the elections clause, that was a potential constitutional infirmity. Now we can take a very pragmatic view of time, place, and manner and sort of thinking about, okay, what is a manner regulation? To some extent, it is inevitable that some aspect of voter qualification will get wrapped up in there. Even if you think about, and the Supreme Court has hailed that voter registration is a manner regulation that Congress can reach under the elections clause. Well, if someone has to pr provide documentary proof of citizenship in order to register to vote, is that voter qualification or is that manner? Do we treat it as a part of manner, right? Voter ID, showing who you are in order to register to vote or to cast a ballot. Is that voter, is that a voter qualification standard? Is that a manner regulation? How should we think about these things? So the, the line between a manner regulation and a voter qualification standard, it has not always been clear. Um, but that being said, I think that when Congress reintroduced the bill in 2021, they sort of learned that lesson, 
right? They learned that they did not have to rely only on the elections clause for HR1. So and if you look at the bill now, they're not only just relying on the elections clause, they're also looking at the 14th, the 15th, the 19th, the 26th amendments, right? They, they mentioned a guarantee clause, which is why I was like, I will come back to it. Cause I was like, it seems like the guarantee clause is gonna have its day, right? And we'll finally have a conversation about what the minimum requirements of Republicanism are, right? Can states pass uh, really anti-majoritarian measures in order to entrench minority political power and still be Republican in form? Right. Congress and H.R. 1 seems to be saying no. Right. Um, and it also forces the Supreme Court to the extent that H.R. 1 becomes law to, to revisit its approach to federal voting rights legislation. Right now we have a provision where Congress is relying on multiple sources of authority to justify what it has done. Um, the Voting Rights Act, at least initially, only relied on the 15th Amendment. Um, and then when it was reauthorized in 1970, it was the 14th and 15th Amendments. Right. H.R. 1 relies on a number of constitutional provisions to sort of justify the scope of congressional power. Um, and so I think that we're in a different world now in terms of Congress sort of learning from its earlier missteps and trying to pass federal voting rights legislation. As we saw in our discussion with Professor Mueller, and I think on a larger scale after the 2020 election, our current election system isn't necessarily an airtight way of guaranteeing that vote tallies are completely accurate and devoid of politics. Does HR1 do anything to respond to these concerns? I wouldn't say that there are a ton of things in here that are a response to the 2020 election, and maybe that is not a good thing. Um, and in fact, if you look at um, if you look at HR4, which is the uh, legislation that is a proposed fix to the Voting Rights Act. It would provide a new coverage for them. Even that's not really a response to a lot of things that happened in 2020 with, uh, you know, the voting rights litigation stemming from COVID um, and also the 2020 election and the, the coup and all of that. Like, I don't really think HR1 or HR4 are effective responses to, to anything that we saw then. Um, and, and maybe it's unfortunate. Um, but one thing that I was talking to a few other election scholars about is the fact that even if we had a working voting rights act, a working section five, that would not have prevented states from refusing to make it easier to vote um, during COVID. And that was that was a problem that we were faced with. Um, and, and similarly, I don't think that there's anything in HR1 that would directly um, address uh, many of the issues that we had then of, of states refusing to relax their rules. Uh, but I do think that it, it alters the foundation of our system in a way where if we have a problem like that next time, and God, please let the next pandemic be 100 years from now, right? Like, But to the extent, <laughs> if we have a problem like that in the future, we're starting from a better place, right? Because if we're starting from a place where, you know, it's you know automatic voter registration, everybody's already registered. If we're starting from a place where um, it's easier to vote absentee for purposes of federal elections. If we're starting from a place where, um, you know, congressional districts are drawn by independent commissions. They're more competitive. Things are, you know, the thought is that things will be less polarized. That's better for voters, right? So we won't be starting at the same place in, you know, if we have a pandemic in 50 years under our HR1 system than we were in the 2020 elections. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. And just to close out our discussion, could you give us a quick overview of how you think the push to enact HR1 fits into the broader scheme of election regulation in the United States? In my book, I talk about Article 1, Section 5, I talk about the guarantee clause, I talk about the Reconstruction Amendments, and what I do is I try to paint a, a comprehensive picture of how Congress has approached voting rights issues. In some ways, its power under Article 1, Section 5 is a compliment, 
to what it can do under the guarantee clause or what it can do under the elections clause, because it, it is a, a, a vehicle to enforce those principles. Right. So under Article one, Section five, there's nothing to prevent Congress from saying that, well, we cannot seat this individual because they were elected in a, a election that is you know, fraudulent or anti-Republican. Right. Or they've been elected in an election where it's inconsistent with state law. Right. And the state has set this particular regulation consistent with their time, place and manner authority under the elections clause. So it's a, it's a vehicle to really vindicate a lot of constitutional provisions that um, may be under enforced by the court. Uh, so, so I think it's a compliment. Right. H.R. 1 should be seen as a part of a bigger picture in what Congress can do in this space. Um, and and honestly, there are people in Congress that don't understand the full scope of congressional power under over elections. And the conversation around H.R. 1 now in 2021, where they're relying on a number of constitutional provisions instead of just one. The, the, the first version of this bill was only two years ago, right, shows that Congress has started to be more aggressive about thinking through what it can do in this space in a way that wasn't even true two years ago. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate hearing about your research and um, all of the insight that you've given us on these issues. Thank you for having me. If you're interested in learning more about the history of federal legislation on voting rights from the founding through the Jim Crow era, please keep an eye out for Professor Tolson's forthcoming book, In Congress We Trust, to be published next year. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at U. C-H-I-L-R-E-V, and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 5.